Hello, it's Wednesday, December the 15th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. It sounds crackers, but you can buy crackers for your pet dogs. Unemployment, it's fallen again, even though it was supposed to soar at the end of the furlough scheme. I'll be asking an employment expert why. Covid in Scotland, a dramatic increase in regulations north of the border, although so far it's guidance, not compunction. But first, that rebellion in the Commons, one of the largest in history for any Conservative Prime Minister, as virtually 100 MPs defy Boris Johnson on Covid's Plan B. So it's the biggest rebellion of Boris Johnson's premiership. In fact, it's one of the biggest rebellions of any Conservative government in any time. 99 of his own MPs voting against the Prime Minister's plan to move us into Plan B to deal with Covid. One of those rebels, Peter Bone, the Conservative MP for Wellingborough and Rushton, and he joins me now. Peter Bone, I was in the Commons yesterday talking to lots of MPs. I thought perhaps 60, maybe even 70 MPs might rebel. I never thought 100. Did you? No, I thought the number was... 50. I've been involved in one, organising one or two rebellions. I wasn't involved in organising this one, but the top number seemed to be likely to be 50. Mm. So the fact that it was 100 seems to me that this crossed, you know, it was crossed all, all the party and, and people were just doing what they thought was right and representing the country and their constituents and well done to them who took that decision. Yeah, I was talking to a couple of your colleagues and they said, look, how can we support a measure which means we're telling people to work from home, but oh, but you can carry on having your Christmas party? No, no logic. Yeah, there was a lot of um, the logic disappeared with these measures. And I think the the truth was that the case wasn't made. Um, the arguments were not put to Parliament first. They were announced in a press conference. If the, if the government comes to Parliament with some proposals and they're debated and scrutinised, and, and, and if the government makes their case, I'll vote for them. The government didn't make their case yesterday and they got a, I'm afraid the Prime Minister's got a bloody nose um, as a result of it. Is it more than just about COVID, uh, Peter Bone? We know the Prime Minister's had a very difficult couple of weeks, the rows over Christmas parties, the rows over um, Slees and Owen Paterson. Uh, were some MPs withholding support because they're just so fed up with him? No, I, I really do think people were genuinely um, voting on that particular a statutory instrument or law. There were, a f- I think we had three votes yesterday and people took different decisions on, on each of them. So it's clearly it wasn't a, it absolutely wasn't an anti-Boris thing. It was, this is not conservative. We don't, you know, if there's a free vote, if, if there was a genuine free vote on this, I don't think the, uh, the Prime Minister would have got half the MPs voting for it. I just think it was a mistake. And I did see him very briefly afterwards. I, I saw him and he, he looked a little shell-shocked by it, which is... <laughs> exactly the reaction that I suppose I would have thought. So he would have gone back, thought about this and say, gosh, have I got this wrong? And I hope it's a message for the way forward that we don't get in this sort of mess again. Well, because we do keep hearing dark rumours, don't we? You'll have heard them, I've heard them, about Plan C. Uh, Social distancing, pubs closing, restaurants closing, only doing takeaways again, which would put the hospitality industry for sure and the retail industry back into the dark ages again. Yes, that's right. Now, I, I think Parliament should be sitting next week. I think the uh, leader of the House of Commons should announce today that we will sit next week. And if everything's going well, we can have a statement from the Health Secretary or from Boris saying, actually, it's, it's, it's not as bad as we thought and things are going rather well. Or if they are bringing forward proposals because it's a, things are worse than they thought, it was a, it's turned out to be a terrible variant and it 
vaccines are ineffective and goodness, we, we are going to have to go back to much harsher measures. Well, come to the House of Commons, make those, uh, make the case, have a debate, be scrutinised and let the House of Commons vote on it. So I think we should already now announce that we're coming back next week. Parliament should be working in the middle of a crisis. I don't want to be sitting at home drinking tea and eating mince pies when there's a crisis going on. So let, let's Parliament meet next week. Fascinating. Just finally, your colleague Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown has been widely quoted on radio and television saying that um, he thinks it's possible now that the Prime Minister will face a leadership challenge next year. Do you, put, do you give any credence to that idea? No, no whatsoever. Uh, this is not the Theresa May situation where people really felt that she was she she just wasn't wasn't up to doing the job and she she had to go I, I i detect none of that what they want is the prime minister to reflect on what happened be more consultative with with the party and with parliament and don't forget that you know whenever you bring in a measure it may protect people from getting covid but it has all sorts of other effects it does people's jobs in it damages the economy and affects people's mental health there's a balance to on all these issues so I, i'm sure the prime minister if, if i wanted the prime minister to make a new year's resolution i would say listen do what you think is right but listen to parliament consult with your colleagues then bring forward not the other way around. All right, that's Peter Bone. He's the Conservative MP for Wellingborough and Rushton, one of those 99 rebels. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our podcast and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has announced new COVID rules in Scotland, of course aimed at controlling the Omicron variant. The rules reintroduce social distancing and they're asking people to limit household mixing before and after Christmas. Dr Philippa Whitford is the SNP's health spokesperson at Westminster and the MP for Central Ayrshire, and she joins me now. Dr Whitford, there's no compunction here. It's guidance coming out of the uh, Holyrood Parliament. Yes, it is guidance. I mean, obviously, um, Omicron is so much more infectious than Delta. If you have close contact, one in five with Delta would likely catch COVID, whereas it's seven in 10 with Omicron. So reducing your contacts is critical. You know, boosting with the vaccine, really important, but that's going to take weeks, whereas you actually have to do something to slow Omicron down now and reducing our contacts is part of that. And so what, I, if, I, if, my, if I understand it correctly, you can correct me, pubs, restaurants and shops have to take measures to avoid crowding and queues. So perhaps um, table service may be reintroduced in pubs uh, uh, and perhaps even limits on the number of people who go in these places. Um, yes, I mean, it's obviously there, there'll be more detailed guidance to things like hospitality, yeah. but it will be going back to what we had in supermarkets, one-way systems, marks on the floor, spacing perspex screens and and obviously we kept mandatory masks in scotland throughout so we you know we continue to have what's called an england plan b but obviously pushing people to you know don't be sloppy about it make sure you are wearing your mask make sure you are cleaning your hands and give people a bit of distance now and and help me out here the the advice on households mixing you, you to limit indoor mixing to just three households how does how does that work so only people from three households can be in one room together at christmas is that the idea as opposed to a large uh, family not, which not might... for christmas oh. not for christmas right uh, before christmas the advice is whether you're meeting in a cafe or in a home right uh, 
please limit it to three households. Yeah. Um, trying to have Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day to be whatever your family needs to be, but yeah. have it on the small end rather than the big party end. I mean, last year we couldn't even have our extended families no. at Christmas. So right. the, the ask is let's reduce contacts now so that we've got less infection and can preserve the actual key family days uh, of Christmas. Where do you get figures of three households? Why three? Why not maybe four or six? I'm just curious. Well, well, obviously, I mean, this was one of the guidances that was used last year. Okay. Um, you know, and households often contain like extended households, someone who may have an elderly relative nearby who becomes part of their household bubble but but literally the more households you have the more individual groups you have then obviously the risk goes up so i think it is that that just three is felt to be uh, if you like reasonably limiting it um making christmas practical um uh, in in the run up to Christmas, without making it too harsh, but sure. there isn't a. I mean, no one's done a randomised control trial of three versus five yeah. versus seven. Yeah. We just know that Omicron is more infectious yeah. than any of the other variants we've faced in the last two years. And is it fair to say that Scotland, like London, is a, a it's, it's an awful cliche is a hot, is an Omicron hotspot? I don't think that it is, actually. I think it is more that 95% of PCR tests in Scotland are able to identify what's called the S-gene dropout, which is the early warning sign that might be Omicron. Um, it's about 35% of the labs in England. They're now working on how to develop another proxy test to help you identify. Um, but, I, I mean, we started at, you know, 1%. We're now at over 27%. That's just just the curve that Omicron is on, London's at 44%. Mm-hmm. So I think when the proxy test is introduced to the COVID labs across England, you're going to get more of those S-gene uh, dropouts identified. And when you identify them, then you send them for genomics and you get that confirmation. But that's like a week later. So genomics, which is called here's how many confirmed cases, is not terribly useful in the actual management of it because it's just there's too much delay. So identifying it straight away on the PCR and being able to say, this looks like an Omicron case is quite important. Fascinating. That's Dr. Philippa Whitford. She's the SNP's health spokesperson at Westminster and the MP for Central Ayrshire. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the UK's employment market is in pretty rude health, despite the end of furlough and predictions that unemployment would spike. In fact, unemployment is down, vacancies are up. But Plan B, which has triggered a huge revolt in the House of Commons, is that going to threaten the jobs market? Joining me now is Simon Wingate, who's managing director of read.co.uk, the employment agency. Mr Wingate, um, are you confounded, surprised by just how robust the jobs markets proved to be? Because I can remember apocalyptic predictions that unemployment could go up to 10 or 11 percent when we came out of furlough. In fact, it's now fallen to 4.2 percent. I'm, I'm very surprised, actually, at the fact that the labour market has held up as strongly as, as it has. We were all anticipating a, a wave of redundancies, a wave of unemployment um, as a result of the fellow scheme coming to an end, and we simply haven't seen it. And actually, the ONS data says that, as you said, the employment market is in, in very good health. Um, more people 
employed now than there were before the pandemic. There's more vacancies for job seekers to apply for. So it's, it's startling, really, how well the labour market is holding up, considering everything that we've been through over the last 18 months. What do you put it down to? I think there's probably a couple of things. One is the fact that the, I guess, opportunities from a job seeker perspective are, are looking very strong. So there's a huge amount of choice in the market. I think organisations who potentially would have been looking to make wide-scale redundancies simply haven't needed to because, I guess, their own economics have looked better than they were anticipating. So those redundancies haven't come to, um, haven't come to fruition. But I also think there's been a change in the labour market as a whole in the sense that we, you know, reports have said that there's about a million people who have left the employment market or the labour market over the last year. A um, number of those have maybe moved to, uh, to, to different countries, for example, or moved out of more urban areas to the countryside. So I think there's a number of reasons where actually the market itself has shifted fundamentally, which means what job seekers are doing has changed and what employers are doing to attract people has changed as well. So I think there, there are a number of factors that feed into it, but certainly it's it's much more positive than many of us would have anticipated, that's for sure. And we've got, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, around 1.2 million unfilled vacancies. Now, what sort of jobs are they? Are they base- Are there many of them part-time? Yeah, really good question. So, yes, so the, I guess the record from, um, for, from September to November is, as you said, 1.2 million vacancies, according to the ONS. And they are market-wide and they are country-wide. But I think what's been particularly or what's particularly clear is that there's almost a, a democratization of location. So what we're seeing is um, a, a lower distrib- or a wider distribution of jobs across the UK because of the fact, obviously, so many more people are are working remotely. So rather than jobs being concentrated in towns and cities, they are they're more geographically dispersed now. So I think that's that's one thing to consider. Um, I think there's also another element of the fact that generally whichever market sector you are looking at there is high demand whether that be we've seen a lot in the press about hgv drivers being in high demand mm. and certainly being able to command much higher salaries than they were able to before care has, is a sector which has obviously grown in importance for us all over the last 18 months and there's a skills shortage in that area but also if you look at technology um, there's a huge um, skill shortage with you know high skilled technologists in the in, in the market as well but even through manufacturing as well so Almost all, every sector that you look at, there is high demand. But unfortunately, at the moment, not necessarily the job seekers on the market applying for those jobs. So it is a real challenge for employers to find the right people at the moment. Um, I, I heard someone talking about why we're doing much better than France and Germany. And someone said, well, it's Britain's flexible labour markets. Does that mean Britain's flexible labour markets, Mr. Mr. Wingate, that actually um, it's easier for employers to get rid of staff in this country than it is perhaps in France and Germany, where... Um, employment is often much more unionized that's an excellent question um it's a difficult question to answer because of i guess the nuances of local legislation but obviously there have been a number of changes in recent years about um, employment legislation certainly for people who are maybe in the early stages of employment i don't think it's necessarily that easy in the uk to uh, to get rid of people as it were and certainly employers who are doing best by their people certainly wouldn't view it in that way but yeah, you're, it's very right to point it out. Perhaps that's something that sits behind why the picture in the UK is potentially different there than in mainland Europe. Very interesting and very encouraging. And, and, what, and it's good to have some good news in the run-up to Christmas, don't you think? It is, absolutely, yeah. Really, really good news. And I think if you're, if you're a job seeker looking at uh, January and scratching your head and wondering what the future looks like for the employment market, one can argue there's never been a better time to look for a job because there's huge amounts of, huge numbers of jobs out there and it's a job seekers market, so they have the opportunity to uh, 
to demand a little bit more from potential employers than perhaps where they were before. So no, it's definitely good news for job seekers heading into the festive period. And what better place to look than read.co.uk? Well, exactly. I would naturally 100% <laughs> agree with you. We've got the best part of 300,000 jobs on our website. Have you really? There's plenty of choice for people. Yeah, plenty of choice. 300,000. Well, that's very encouraging. That's Simon Wingate, who is the managing director of read.co.uk. Thanks for joining us. So a new bill which aims to make the internet a safer place is due to be put before Parliament next year. The online safety bill is designed to protect users from fraud and abuse and prevent children and people under the age of 18 from accessing pornography. Tim Cairns is a senior policy officer at CARE, which is Christian Action Research and Education, and he joins me now. Mr Cairns, um, what you're seeking is, particularly with regarding pornography, that somehow there is a system of age verification to prevent people under the age of 18 stumbling onto porn or even finding porn. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, the, the crucial thing, Andrea, is that's already been legislated for yeah. in 2017 yeah. in the Digital Economy Act. I mean, Parliament already passed age verification regulations for major pornography sites. Now, that legislation does have a defect in it. It doesn't cover social media. And I think you know there is a case for legislation to be made uh, for social media websites to be included in that age verification. But Parliament has already enacted this. It's on the statute books. The government just haven't brought it into the being yet. Why not? Well, that's a great question and one the government should answer, I think. Um, the government would say, look, they want to include social media. They want a much broader programme. That's what this online safety bill is designed to do. And we would say we agree with you on that. That's what we should do. But let's put the protections that we have in place. Let's protect children now, because let's not forget this online safety bill is probably not going to be passed into law on the statute books until about 2024. Now, the committee yesterday in their report said that they wanted to see age verification type measures being brought in within three to six months of royal assent. Now, if we were to track that timeline, that would mean in 2017, Parliament said, yes, pornography sites should be regulated on the age, but we're not actually going to see those measures on the statute books in operation, in force, until seven years after Parliament made its initial declaration, passed its initial laws in 2017 on that issue. And I think most people would think that was unacceptable. I think most people think that children um, should be protected from pornography um, on the on the internet, the way that they're protected from stumbling across pornography on the high street uh, as well. But what guarantee is there, uh, even if um, the, they, they put age verification into the new online safety bill, what, 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 who's to say that they're going to enforce it? Because they didn't in 2017. Who's to say they will again? Well, that's, that's something that the government would have to answer. I think most people who are listening to this podcast, I think, would look at it and they would say, look, we think it's right that people shouldn't be accessing uh, extreme pornography, any types of pornographic content. They shouldn't be able to stumble across that when they're 11, 12, 13, 14. I think most people listening to this podcast will say, look, that's something that we would want to protect our children and young people from. So I think that's what the the majority of people in this country would like to see. That's certainly what the majority of MPs and, and Lords said in 2017. It's up to the government, the answer is, why would they not give that basic uh, protection to the children of this country? I think that's, that's something for the government to answer if they don't bring that in now um, on the online safety bill. And actually, what they should be doing is bringing in interim measures between now and the passing of that bill 
in order to protect children online. We would, we would be horrified, I think, if we thought that there was children accessing pornography on the high street, walking into to shops where it would be age inappropriate for them to be in, and, and accessing uh, pornographic material in high street shops. I think most people listening to this podcast would be saying that we don't agree with that. Well, we don't agree with that on the high street. And it's not good enough in the high street, and we regulate that in the high street. We should be regulating that online as well. What? Are, how? Just explain as well, if you could, Mr. Kens, how does age verification work in the sense? Look, how do you prove to the computer that you're accessing that you may potentially want to access porn on? How can you establish? How can it be established that someone is over the age of eighteen? Well, there's many ways of doing that, and it's very much established now. Right. In terms of data protection and all of that, and the information commissioner has looked at that over over many years now, and there are established online. Um, uh, software, uh, uh, things online that we can do that protects people's uh, data and protects people's privacy and also then um, uh, age verifies uh, for children. I mean, I think even beyond that, you know, if you're looking like cyber pornography, there are smart um, uh, measures now that can be taken and, and, and smart apps that can look at the, 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 st- the sort of stuff that people are, are accessing and sort of say, we, 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 we assume from the type of things that are being accessed here that this is a child and therefore we're going to we're going to regulate so sort of you know remote or, or bot activity can do that for particular websites and then there's, there's much more um age specific things much more targeted things for things like pornographic websites where you're absolutely verifying people's identity uh, but not identity people's age in a way that is safe in a way that is data secure in a way that um effectively protects children so the, the, the world has moved on quite a bit actually since 2017 because one of the big issues in the debate at that point in time is well how do we make this data secure are people do people want to hand over their data to uh, uh pornography websites in order that they can be verified well we've moved on well on from there and the software is in place the apps are in place to be able to do this in a way that um, protects people's privacy in a way that um, protects people who are over the age of 18 and allows them to access stuff that's, that's age appropriate for them and then protects children who are under the age of 18 and protects them from stuff that we as a society just think they're not ready to watch yet all right, that's Tim Cairns. He's Senior Policy Officer at CARE, which is Christian Action Research and Education. Thanks for joining us. Would you buy Christmas crackers for your dog? Because apparently sales of Christmas pet treats are up 25%, showing pet owners are keen to ensure everyone in the household gets to enjoy a bit of festive cheer, even Rover, if I can call a dog that. Harry Wallop and his cockapoo, Darcy, have been testing the range, and he joins me now. How is Darcy, Harry? Uh, well, Darcy is very pleased because after the photo shoot in the Daily Mail, she yeah. got lots of treats from inside right. the crackers. So ah. she had a whale of a time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I used to think until lockdown uh, that, uh, you know, wasn't really fussed about dogs. And dog owners, I thought, were insufferable, particularly yeah. dog owners who treated their animals like humans. They're the worst sort. Couldn't stand them. 18 months later, I have a lockdown puppy, and of course, she's part of the family. And the kids insist she's got to have Christmas presents. I go, well, of course she does. (sighs) So I've got sucked into the madness of dog treats. We haven't got a dog advent calendar, but I gave dog crackers a whirl. What bits did she like, and what bits didn't she like? Okay, so the dog crackers come. There's two sorts of dog crackers. There's basically human crackers that two humans basically pull on behalf of the dog and inside of some dog treats 
uh, and some particularly poor quality dog jokes. And they're kind of fun, but essentially they're human crackers. And mm. gosh, Fortnum and Mason even made them. There's posh. £15 a pop per cracker. Oh, That's and obviously there is money. no pop. Yeah, yeah. A lot of money. And there's and no, and no scary bang, because that, that would scare Darcy. A- absolutely. No bangs. These crackers, none of these crackers have bangs. Some have hats for humans. And then the other type of crackers are the crackers very much designed for dogs. And one even had a dog hat with a little bow you could tie on. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Isn't that a form of cruelty? Feels sounds a bit well, cruel. Well, she... She wasn't very impressed right. when I was trying to try the hat. No. The kids, however, thought it was adorable. So there we go. Uh, and they said, and they had the, the one of them was very clever. It had sort of, um, you know, sort of dog rope toys. Yes. You get them to chew on a rope. And obviously yeah. part of the fun is you kind of yank, the dog quite likes playing. You, you hold one end and they yank the other. So one of the crackers very cleverly had a rope toy kind of running all through, through the cracker so you could almost pretend you were pulling the cracker with the dogs the cracker was in the middle and the rope toy was coming out one end and coming out the other end you pulled Mm -hmm. one end they pulled the other that was fun um so yeah you get some you get invariably they all come with some dog treat inside yeah uh you get a dog joke Uh, you might get a hat for the human and some of the dog treats were there were some fishy ones quite smelly fishy ones Mm -hmm. um but you know it's basically just another version of give your pet a treat at christmas yeah and i suppose and what's wrong more involved exactly and what what did you make of the good chaps the natural pet store one was that a good one it's a bit cheaper Uh, 7.95 that's a bit more like it yeah that was very good so that was the one with the rope toy running through it right that was one that was very cleverly designed yeah uh, I was impressed by that. The, the, my favourite one yeah. was from a company called Buzzy Bear Shop. Right. And there are lots of these you'll find on uh, either on Etsy or on Not on the High Street. Right. Those are sort of two very good websites for slightly mm. alternative presents, not just for dogs, for humans as well, but they're very yeah. good at the, the sort of the handmade. So the Buzzy Bear one, you could personalise it. You could get their name on the, on the cracker if you wanted. And also you could personalise it on the size of the dog. And I thought, this is a bit weird. Why do I need to do this? Small, medium, large, extra large. Uh, do you have a St. Bernard or do you have a little tiny, you know, Shih Tzu? I thought, why do they need to know? And, of course, it was only afterwards I discovered it was the size of the hat inside. Uh, you don't want your St. Bernard wearing a tiny little. No, no, no. And what are you going to buy? Does, will um, Darcy get a present on Christmas Day, Harry? The children have insisted. They've yes. insisted, yes. right? Uh, uh, there will be various. I don't know. There'll be oh, there'll be like a chew toy. Probably last year, her first Christmas in that in the Wallop household, she got a chew toy in the shape of a turkey, and that did go down very well. It has to be said. So, I, Christmas shopping has not yet been done for the dog, but I'm guessing something similar. Very nice. What a nice, what a nice household your dog's growing up in, Harry. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the kids calling the shots, it sounds like to me. Yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, they, were, they quite fancy a dog jumper, but I refuse to have a dog that wears a jumper. <laughs> Perhaps you should you get, get a dog, dog jumper. <laughs> you could wear one with a dog on it. Yeah. You know, one of the supermarkets this year are selling dog Christmas hoodies. Right. There you go, Harry. With matching human hoodies to go with it. So this is the whole thing. You now dress up all the family you think that's bad enough wearing mm. matching christmas jumpers you get the dog to join in too my word what a ha- what a what a ha- what a novel novel christmas that sounds that's harry wallop uh my favorite consumer journalist talking about 
Darcy and his Christmas treats. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.